Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. Our sermon text for this morning will be Acts 5, 27 to 42. Uh, before we read that together, will you pray with me? Our Father, we do come uh, to catch a glimpse in your word of that, uh, of that glory, of the glory of your Son, of the glory of our Bridegroom, uh, the one uh, whom we long to see and uh, who with, with confidence we know we will see on that last day. And we pray that as we read your word and hear your word that you would that you would give us a greater glimpse of our Savior in the Scriptures, uh, that we would rejoice more fully now, uh, even as we will rejoice fully uh, in the day to come. Uh, Father, pour out your Spirit on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, sometimes it is hard to figure out uh, whether advice is good or bad. And uh, maybe you know how it is. Uh, you have some pressing problem and you ask for someone's advice or not, and uh, they give it to you. And then you have the additional problem of trying to figure out whether their advice is good or not. And it's not always easy, especially because uh, often we get conflicting advice from different people. And uh, there are some words we're about to read in our text some words of advice given that uh, in some ways are, are so interesting that commentators uh, don't agree on whether they are good or bad. And uh, I couldn't bring myself to, to pass over them. We, talked, we touched on them last week, but uh, I wanted to talk about them a little more fully before we move on to chapter 6. And uh, those words are found near the end of the chapter. They're the words of a man named Gamaliel, uh, but I'll begin reading in verse 27. So if you could turn with me uh, to Acts chapter 5, uh, verse, we'll read verses 27 through to the end. Acts 5. And when they had brought them, that is the apostles, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, 
and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Well, the apostles uh, had been arrested. They were arrested for preaching. They were brought before the council of the Jews, and there they preach the gospel again, and they preach it in such a way that uh, it makes the council so angry that they want to kill the apostles. Literally, they want to kill them. Until Gamaliel, a Pharisee, steps in, and uh, he gives advice which amounts to this. He says, God might be in this. He might not be in this. If he's not, don't worry about it. The movement will fizzle out and die. Uh, But if he is, you better not fight against it because you might be found opposing God. And therefore, let's just just wait and see what happens. God might be in it. He might not. Let's, Let's wait and see. Let's reserve judgment. What do you think? Is Gamaliel's advice good or bad? Some have actually even given his advice a name. Uh, They they talk about it as the Gamaliel principle. And uh, some, uh, they, they, they use it in this way. They say, okay, whatever is happening in the church, don't judge. Just wait and see. If it stands the test of time, God is in it. Uh, If it fizzles, God was not. Good advice or bad? Well, our outline this morning, uh, you can see on the back of your bulletin, uh, there are three points there. We're going to talk about the logic of Gamaliel's advice, the lies of Gamaliel's advice, and the logic and life of the gospel. So first, the the logic of Gamaliel's advice. Uh, Gamaliel starts with two examples to support his argument, Uh, Thutis and Judas. And uh, he says, Thutis claimed to be somebody, maybe a prophet, maybe the Messiah or some such thing. And, and then there was Judas the Galilean, who was actually upset at Roman tax policy. And uh, both men gained the following, and both were killed. And those who followed them were dispersed or scattered. And their movements eventually came to an end. And Gamaliel's argument up to this point is, okay, the death of the leader leads to the end of the movement. Is that true? Well, yes and no, right? I mean, on a a purely human level, many movements do end when their leader dies, and yet many live on. Uh, Two very, very different examples, right? Think of Islam, which has continued after the death of Muhammad for many years, or uh, Apple computers, right? Which has continued after the death of Steve Jobs, at least for the moment. you, you might say, though, okay, but Gamaliel's principle isn't about that. Um, he, he, it's specific to his context, right? He's talking about rebellion movements within Israel and the putting down of those movements. 
Well, whatever the case, he's, he's demonstrating his principle by these examples. And those examples do show a kind of proverbial truth, right? A, a cut it off at the head kind of logic or a, a take the wind out of their sails kind of logic, right? It's, it's folk logic, maybe, but it's, but it's logic. Uh, the death of, of the leader, especially the sudden violent death of a leader, tends to lead to the end of a movement. All right. Uh, but there's more. Uh, verses 38 and 39, Gamaliel says this. He says, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Again, is that true? Do the plans of man always fail? And are those movements which are of God unstoppable? Again, yes and no. Uh, Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Right? Man makes plans, but God's purposes come to pass. Uh, that, that, those verses, and many like it in Proverbs, are not meant to discourage planning, by the way. Right? Plan by all means. Right? Plan, plan, plan. But know that if God is not in it, your plans will come to nothing. See, it's not planning that the Proverbs discourage, but self-reliance in those plans. And so you have that, that great proverb, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Right? So you plan trusting in God's providence, trusting in God's sovereignty. Or uh, the great verse out of the Psalms, uh, you may know Psalm 127, verse 1, which says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The, the builder must build and the watchman must stay awake. But if God is not in it, their effort is in vain. The New Testament has uh, some similar kinds of verses in, in the book of James, James chapter 4. Uh, James says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The plans of a man, right? The plans of uh, men and women will fail if God is not in them. If your endeavor works, right? The providence of God has smiled on you, right? Give thanks. If your endeavor does not work, the providence of God has not smiled on you. Again, that's not meant to discourage us from planning. Uh, many Proverbs talk about the benefit of planning. We could look at, we won't. Jesus encourage us, encourages us to be like the wise builder or the, the wise military leader and count the cost even of following him, right? So he encourages us to think through uh, what's going on. And so we should consider, we should plan, uh, but we don't look to the plans themselves to succeed apart from God's blessing. Now, the danger of all this, right, thinking about these Proverbs and thinking about the, the sovereignty of God over what goes on, the danger is we tend to read into it. 
Uh, when our plans succeed or even when they fail, we say God's providence has smiled on me or God's providence has not smiled on me. Okay, fine. That's all well and good. But then we read into it. See, the problem is the success of one's plans actually says very little about whether they are God approved or not. You know, many evil people have done many evil things. Uh, their evil plans succeeded to some degree. Now, we have to say on one level, okay, God, God willed that thing. Now, we try to soften it normally. We, we won't be so bold to say it like that. So we say something like, God allowed it to happen. We're, we're trying to leave room, right, for uh, human intention in that activity. And that's fair enough. Uh, we do that because we have trouble seeing that actually two wills can be operative at the same time, my willing and God's willing. So uh, I, I don't think God is bothered by those kinds of philosophical difficulties. Um, and we actually see in the scriptures, in, in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph, uh, you, know, you know, Joseph uh, says to his brothers, his jealous brothers uh, who threw him into a well and then sold him into slavery, right? This is what he says to his brothers at the end of his life. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, Joseph doesn't excuse the evil of his brothers. He calls it what it is. You meant evil against me. But the fact that his brothers were doing evil does not mean that God was not at work in that for good. Did God approve of the behavior of Joseph's brothers when they sold him into slavery? Absolutely not. Did God will it? Was he at work in it? Did he have good purposes for it? Yes. Is that mysterious? No doubt. Is that what Scripture teaches? Absolutely. See, don't, don't try to solve that mystery uh, human solutions tend to solve the mystery by denying one half or the other of what makes it mysterious in the first place. We either get rid of God's sovereignty or we get rid of human uh, freedom. Problem solved. The problem is the, Bob, the Bible asserts both of those things. Well, back to Gamaliel, right? Back to Gamaliel's principle. If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. True or false? Well, true, uh, God must will your plans for good in order for them to happen. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. If this undertaking is merely of man, it will fail. But that says nothing about God's approval of your plans. Right? God might will your plans contrary to your purposes. Um, you, you, we get into this dangerous mode of reading providence. This worked. God must approve. God must be happy with me. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Matthew 26, 24, obviously a, a pretty serious example, but Matthew 26, 24 tells us this. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Jesus is going to the cross to die. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Speaking of Judas. So the, the plans of Judas Iscariot worked. 
But God did not approve of Judas's behavior. God did not approve of Judas's plans. He allowed them for his own good purposes. He ordained them for his own good purposes. Now, we, we can say, right, again, as, as our forefathers would, right, God's providence has smiled on me, meaning that God allowed our plans to succeed. But we must avoid the danger in reading into that about God's approval of my heart. We can certainly rejoice, right, in God's smiling providence. We can give thanks for God's blessings, and we should rejoice, and we should give thanks. But we shouldn't read into it. When we look at Gamaliel's logic, in in the first instance, right, we're dealing with kind of a a wisdom principle, not, not not a scientific principle, but wisdom principles are no less true, right? They just have a different kind of application. General truths are not less true for being general, Uh, And and here's what we see. Generally, if you kill the leader, the movement will die. You cut off the head, the body will die. You strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And then Gamaliel quotes another principle, less proverbial, less general, more absolute. I know more absolute doesn't make any sense, but I'm going going with it. More absolute. Uh, If a plan is merely human, it will fail. The flip side of that is, if it is God's will, it is unstoppable. What is Gamaliel really saying here? He's saying God's plans are unstoppable. That's Gamaliel's logic. Let's get to the lie. The lies, even, in Gamaliel's advice. First, Gamaliel's advice sounds sounds like trust in God's sovereignty. If this plan or this undertaking is a man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. The problem here is uh, not Gamaliel's belief in the sovereignty of God, but as we said, his implicit reading into that sovereignty. Um, just because something stands or falls doesn't mean that, that, that we can read into that God's pleasure or God's judgment. Gamaliel neglects the fact that while providence is absolute, that doesn't tell us about God's approval. So it sounds like trust in the sovereignty of God, but it leans toward reading into providence in an unhealthy way. And yet, Gamaliel's superstition is not the only problem. It's not even the main one. Because his words sound like trust in God's sovereignty. They lean toward superstition. They also sound like humility, don't they? Look at verse 38. After uh, recounting the examples of Thutis and Judas, he says, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if, their plan, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. What is his actual advice? Keep away from these men and let them alone. His advice is reserve judgment, wait and see, and don't judge, right? I mean, that that sounds like humility. That sounds pretty good. This is how people use the, the, quote, Gamaliel principle. Uh, Something's going on in the church. Some people start to get a little bit skeptical, and uh, people say, oh, remember Gamaliel. Leave it alone. Don't judge. Wait and see. But Gamaliel's advice actually fails at two points. 
First, his, his don't judge attitude. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 13, verse 12 says this. If you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you, so Israel is about to enter into the promised land, and uh, God's saying, if you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is uh, giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, then what? So you hear this, people are saying, let's go serve other gods in another city. What do you do? Do you leave it alone? Do you wait and see? Do you withhold judgment? Well, verse 14 of that passage in Deuteronomy says, Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword. Now I know, okay, that's the Old Testament, right? We are not a a, a political national entity in the same way Israel was. That's true. Uh, We don't use the power of the sword to enforce religious conformity. That's good. Okay, fine, but what does the New Testament say about such things? 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but, but what? Leave it alone. Wait and see. Withhold judgment. No. Test. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And and Paul agrees with this. 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Jesus himself commends the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation chapter 2 because they could not bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. See, we're not actually called to take a a, a don't judge, just wait and see attitude toward teaching in the church. We're called to test the teaching. This was true in Moses' day. It was true in Peter and John's day. It's true in our own day. Gamaliel says, "Ah, don't judge. Scripture says, test. Gamaliel's advice, which sounds like humility, it actually fails at another point. Uh, Wait and see sounds humble, but it's, it's actually an excuse here. An excuse for what? An excuse for inaction. Gamaliel, like so many before and after him, uses the providence of God as an excuse for inaction. His advice is don't do anything, just let God handle it. Gamaliel tries to to cut the mystery and take sovereignty to mean it doesn't matter what we do, right? Just sit back and wait. Your actions don't mean anything anyway. If this plan is of man, it will fail with or without you. If it is of God, you cannot stop it. Your actions, Gamaliel is saying, don't mean anything. Just sit back and wait for God to act. Scripture doesn't draw those conclusions, though, from the sovereignty of God. Yes, God is in control, but your actions are meaningful. God works through your actions to his glory. This is one of the reasons we have a multitude of commands in both the Old and the New Testament, right? God is teaching us how to display his glory in the created world through our actions. 
God desires us to act in the world. And that is true even of our response to teaching in the church. Right? Don't forget uh, Gamaliel and the early Christians were all a part of Israel. Israel, the, sort of the assembly of God at the time. And, and something is going on in Israel. Moses says, inquire, make search, ask diligently, figure it out to the glory of God. Gamaliel, sell, say, Gamaliel says, just wait and see. God is sovereign. Let him handle it. But God wants us to handle it and test the spirits and then act accordingly. See, here's the problem. If the council had tested the apostles' teaching, they would have found one of two things. If it was not of God, it was of men. The apostles were then teaching heresy. They needed to be dealt with in some way. At least that their teaching uh, should have been condemned. But if it was of God, the apostles' teaching is good news. Jesus is the Messiah. Therefore, they have been in sin when they put Jesus to death. And so the council must repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. See, the gospel never calls for us just to stand idly by and wait and see. Either it is true or it is false. If it is false, it must be rejected. If it is true, Christ has risen from the dead as Lord and Christ, and therefore we need to repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. One way of, of looking at Gamaliel's advice, very simply, is he, he says it's okay to sit on the fence in life. That you can be neither cold nor hot toward God. Right? It's okay to be lukewarm toward Him. Neither following nor hindering, but withholding judgment. And just waiting and seeing. But Jesus calls us to, to make a decision, especially with respect to Him. Either He is only a dead Jewish rabbi... Or he's the risen Lord, the King of heaven and earth. Of course, Scripture says that he is the King. And one day Jesus will come back for his own and every eye will see him. But don't wait and see. See him now as the risen Lord and bow your knee now in joy rather than then in pain. See, the... the there are three things that we've looked at, right? Or two things so far. The, the logic of Gamaliel's advice. And we saw that there, there's some truth to, behind what Gamaliel says. But then we've also looked at the lies in Gamaliel's advice. And though he has some truths, he uses those in a way they shouldn't be used. His advice ultimately is bad. Let's move on to the third point and think about the logic and life of the gospel. Said already that scripture agrees with Gamaliel on two points, right? One, as kind of a general rule, kill the leader and the movement will die, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And two, if a plan is merely human, it will fail. If it's God's will, it is unstoppable. But we need to make a comment on each of these in light of the gospel. And the first is this why, why didn't Jesus' movement die? As a general rule, kill the leader and the movement will die. Well, one commentator, I. Howard Marshall, said, uh, More precisely, Gamaliel contended that once the leaders of mass movements had been killed, their followers soon lost enthusiasm for their cause. Now that Jesus was dead, there was no need to take action against his disciples. That's Gamaliel's advice. Now that Jesus is dead, 
Don't worry about it. Jesus was put to death as the leader of this movement. He was put to death on the cross by these very men. Which means by Gamaliel's logic, the movement should have died with him. By Gamaliel's logic, the the movement should have died with Jesus, but it didn't. Why not? Well, because Jesus didn't stay dead. (laughs) The real chink in Gamaliel's logic is the resurrection, right? Thutis was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed. Judas, too, perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Jesus is killed by being hanged on a tree, and those who followed him were scattered. All the disciples left him and fled in the Garden of Gethsemane. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But Jesus did not stay dead. Now now maybe, just maybe, Gamaliel thought this might possibly be true. Peter had just preached that Jesus was raised from the dead and exalted by God the Father. And Gamaliel says, uh, kill the leader, the movement will die. But then he says, let's wait and see here. Why? I mean, if Jesus is dead, there's nothing to wait for. They know now this movement will die because the leader has been killed, just like with Thutis, just like with Judas. So when Gamaliel says, if God is in this, maybe he means, if what they're saying is true, and Jesus really has been raised, let's wait and see. Maybe, maybe not, but Jesus had been raised, whether Gamaliel believed it or not. And though he was struck and the sheep were scattered, he was also raised and he gathered them back together again. And what what accounts for the success of the church is we don't have to guess at providence here. We don't have to try to read the tea leaves, right? Jesus rose from the dead and in so doing, he conquered death. Not only for himself, but also for his people, for his sheep. And the Bible consistently puts forth the resurrection of Jesus as not an unclear providence, I don't know why that happened. That was weird. No. The Bible puts forth the resurrection of Jesus as a sign of God's approval of Jesus' righteous life and his obedient self-sacrifice. We know that God approved of the work of his son, not because everything went well in his life, not because it looked unstoppable from the outside, but because though things went as bad as they possibly could, God raised him from the dead. Jesus' movement didn't die because Jesus didn't stay dead, which means the church is is not really an exception to Gamaliel's words. Uh, If you kill the leader, the movement dies, but of course the leader has to stay dead. (laughs) Or the proverb doesn't hold. Why didn't Jesus' movement die? Because Jesus didn't stay dead. Second, that's why didn't his movement die? Second, the gospel-shaped success. Right? If If a plan is merely human, it will fail. If it is God's will, it is unstoppable. It's interesting. uh, One uh, theologian, great theologian, Abraham Kuyper, Dutch theologian, politician, founder of everything under the sun. uh, Abraham Kuyper was a pretty amazing man. He says this, Gamaliel's advice is bad. It is not true that God destroys forthwith that which is not from him and crowns with success every endeavor of his believers? How is it that Gamaliel's advice, so profoundly untrue, 
is repeated again and again in life. Could it not be just as well the other way around that to have no success suggests virtue? Oppressed, downtrodden, molested, can these be signs that you are walking on the way of God? See, if this plan, Gamaliel's words, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Is Kuiper right? Is Gamaliel's advice bad and profoundly untrue? Actually, I think Gamaliel's logic, the logic still holds, though the advice is bad, as we have seen. Uh, What have we said? No plan will ever succeed if God is not in them. And no plans will ever fail if God is at work. In fact, given Luke's perspective, the writer of the book of Acts, uh, at, at, at least a few decades after this event, uh, the part of Luke's point is that God is at work in the church, therefore the church is unstoppable. He's actually using Gamaliel's words against him in a bit of irony. But just because God is at work in the church, just because the church is ultimately unstoppable, does that mean that suffering and difficulty will be absent? Gamaliel doesn't say that. In fact, Scripture says the opposite. See, the problem is often our definition of success. What what does it look like for the church to not be overthrown? Those are Gamaliel's words. If God is in this, you won't be able to overthrow it. What does it look like for the church to not be overthrown? Let me read for you from Paul's own words in 2 Corinthians 4. This is the triumph over the church. This is what it looks like for the church to not be overthrown. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death For Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That is gospel-shaped success. See, the, the gospel has to do with suffering and the subsequent resurrection of the Messiah. What does it mean that the church will not be overthrown? It means though we die, yet we will live. Though we suffer now, we have the hope of glory. Though we bear the cross, we will wear the crown. And and, and it's actually more than that. It's more than just hope for the future. Paul says we carry around the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in us right now. God displays the work of Jesus in us when we suffer, when we face difficulties. When we face trials. Notice the disciples at the end of the chapter, they rejoice that they're counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus. Their their delight in the glory of Jesus is manifested more fully through their suffering. How could we know how much they delighted in Jesus? Only when everything else is taken away. And they're still rejoicing. We could take that a step further. Uh, Flip over to Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Here we have what is really the the irony of all ironies in light of Gamaliel's words. Gamaliel says, kill the the leader and end the movement. And specifically, he says, uh, those who followed Judas were dispersed, and all who followed Judas were scattered. And that was the end of it. 
Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. As Gamaliel said, persecution scattered the church, as it did the followers of Thutis and Judas. But that does not lead to the church's demise, but to the church's growth. Look at Acts 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The scattering of persecution for the church becomes the sowing of the seed of the church. It does not end the movement, but it spreads it. In Jesus, death leads to life. Suffering leads to glory. Suffering and persecution leads to the spread of the gospel. We carry around the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also might be manifested in our bodies, Paul says. Scripture says that we we see God's approval of his son in his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is the vindication of Christ. And what that means for us is that if you belong to Christ, God's approval of you is not sought in whether your earthly plans succeed or not but in the cross and in the resurrection. How do you know God approves of you? Is it because your day is going well? Is it because your your plan succeeded? It worked? How do you know God approves of you? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And by faith, I belong to him. And if you belong to Christ, whatever struggles you're facing, know that not only is there something better waiting for you, but God is using your trouble now to manifest his glory in the present age. Paul says the death of Christ is at work in you, so the life of Christ might be seen as well. You may not understand that. You may not be able to figure out how it is that my struggles, that my troubles, that my difficulties manifest the life of Jesus. That's okay if you don't understand it, right? We believe it by faith. God says it, and so we believe it, that he is going to make his power known through our weakness and our suffering to the glory of our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we often think about both our struggles and our victories wrongly. We need wisdom. We need wisdom that comes from your Spirit Uh, We need the wisdom of the gospel to shape the way we think about our struggles, the way we think about our trials, and the way we think about our sorrows, the way we think about our joys. We need you to shape the way we think about these things so that you would be glorified in and through us in everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.